Hi, Bert Alcorn here, lead pastor of Anthem Ventura. You're listening to the Anthem Ventura podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen and track with our teachings. The sermon you're about to hear has been prayed and labored over, and we really do hope you find this useful and an aid of your discipleship to Jesus. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Anthem, visit us online at anthemventura.org, or you can download our mobile app from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Enjoy the next hour or so. We have prayed that God would use it in profound ways in the lives of anyone that may hear it. Thanks so much. But let's do it. Let's, let's jump in. Let's jump in together. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14. Just put your thumb there. I want to give you a little bit of context for where we're at in the book of Matthew. Uh, last week, I did a thematic contextual overview of where we are. So all the way back to chapter one, I traced how we got to where we are in the story. So if that's what you're looking for, go back and listen to the podcast. I'm going to give you a different kind of run up to our text today. So open to Matthew 14 and just put your thumb there. Uh, we're going to get there in just a second. Um, but in Matthew, Jesus has been a very busy guy. Can we agree? He's been on the move. He's teaching. He's healing. He's casting out demons. And that's what I want to hone in on a little bit is some of his miraculous works because we see his miraculous works starting to ramp up quite a bit. So track with me here. I'm going to give you a whirlwind. Don't turn there and read them, but just kind of listen as I list off. And in chapter four, Jesus starts off his ministry by healing all the sick. It's a pretty good start to his ministry. And in chapter eight, we have story after story after story of Jesus healing. Eight, he cleansed a leper. He cured a Roman centurion servant. He cooled a fever. He stilled the wind and calmed the storm. He exercised demons. And in chapter 9, he restored a paralytic back to health. He stopped a desperate woman's 25-year discharge of blood. He raised a little girl from the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind. He literally made the mute speak. In chapter 12, he healed a man with a withered hand. And in chapter 14, what we just read last week, He took five loaves of bread, two fish, and fed over 20,000 people. That is the miraculous run-up to where we're at in the story of Jesus so far in the book of Matthew. And I think the reason I share all these is because we are about to get, in a sense, the miracle of all miracles. Because they reveal something explicitly that Jesus has not revealed explicitly yet to us. These miracles that we've listed by how they're done, when they're done, where they're done, to whom they're done, all show us something about the nature of the kingdom of God, right? They all show us he's compassionate, he's kind, Jesus is powerful, he wields this kingdom authority. It shows us what this kingdom of God is like and what it means to be a part of God's family, that there's healing and restoration and and wholeness. And so we think, what is the kingdom of God like? Jesus answered that in parables in 13, but that's also been answered in all the miracles from chapter 4 to the very present. And we see that the kingdom of God is for the rich and the poor, the religious, the non-religious, the Jew, the Gentile, male, female, parent, child. The kingdom is for all who recognize their spiritual sickness, right? And come to Christ in faith for rest for satisfaction, for healing, and forgiveness of sin. 
All these miracles teach us something about the nature of the kingdom of God. But they're also starting to show us the identity of this king bringing about this kingdom. And so we've learned a lot about what the kingdom of God is like, but here explicitly we have a few moments to understand who the king is and what it means to follow this king in his kingdom. And so that's where we find ourselves here today in our text, where Jesus shows us and tells us he's God. This is important. Okay, so Matthew 14 we're going to read from verse 22 to verse 33. It might be one paragraph in some of your guys' Bibles. Okay, so verse 22. He immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Okay, so real quick, just a bit of context. If you don't know what happens in the story right before Jesus feeds 20,000 plus people and goes on, on healing hundreds and hundreds of people, Now, he got there sort of by accident, right? He was trying to get away, to get some solitude, to go up on the mountain and pray with his father because John the Baptist had just died, or he hears that John the Baptist has just died, and Herod is now aware of his ministry and is on the lookout for this person who's doing all these miraculous things. So he tries to get away, to get some solitude, to pray, And instead, the crowds follow him. They know he's the guy to go to if you want to get healed. And so they follow him. And so 20,000 plus people, they're getting fed, getting healed up. And so once they're all fed, once they're all healed up, he sends the crowds away. He puts the disciples on the boat, and then he gets away and goes up to the mountain to be alone with the Father. So this is right after the miraculous feeding of 20,000 plus people. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. He's going back. And he dismissed the crowds. After, verse 23, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Well, Father, would you help us with this text today, understand what it means, understand how we're to live in light of it. Um, Father, would we be good hearers of your word, and uh, would we be good doers of it as we walk out of here? Would you transform us and mold us to be more like you? Uh, Holy Spirit, would you help me teach and preach in a way that is um, faithful and and honoring to the word and appropriate for the word that you would have us uh, for this evening, that you would have us sit and chew on and marinate with. And, and so, Father, we just ask that you'd speak to us through your kids who earnestly want to receive from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Okay, so 
I'm going to look at this text a little bit differently than we normally look through some texts throughout Matthew. So if you've been tracking through us throughout Matthew, kind of typically what we'll go is we'll look to the text and see, is there a certain structure that's here already? And then honestly, if it's Steve or I or someone else, we say, okay, our message follows that structure that's in the text and we go with it. Uh, here, we're in a very interesting narrative part of Scripture, and the things that were largely jumping out at me fall into two themes rather than kind of in a structure of this happened, and this happened, and this happened. So this is going to be a little different than we normally look at Matthew, because I want to look at two themes in particular that are obvious and evident and present here in the text that are important for us. And the first theme I want to look at is who is Jesus? The question of who is Jesus. A very fancy word for that question is Christology. What do we believe about Jesus? Who is he? Who is he revealing himself to be? And that leads us to how we respond. The second theme is what does it mean to follow this Jesus? And how do we walk that out? So the first theme, who is Jesus? Christology. The second theme, what does it mean to follow this Jesus? Or commonly known as discipleship or apprenticeship. These are incredibly evident for us. And so I want us to, to look at the text in the lens of those two things. But before we get there, a little bit of a framework and scene setting. Like I mentioned before, Jesus healed hundreds, fed thousands. Then when he wanted, he does what he wanted to do earlier, get away to pray. And he sends his disciples in a boat and effectively says, I'll catch up with you guys later. Doesn't really give them a whole lot of instruction on how he's going to do that because they're in the boat and he's not. But they say, okay. So immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and then he dismissed the crowds. How he dismisses the crowds and the disciples is of particular importance for us. Okay, so sometimes in our English translations, we lose some of the heartbeat, the meaning, or even the, the variations that would have carried a ton of weight to Matthew's original audience, right? So sometimes we have to go back and say, well, what is this, what is this really intended to mean or to say? And in verse 22, that first verse, how he dismisses the disciples is different than how he dismisses the crowds. Okay, so in verse 22, he made the disciples get on the boat. Okay, that word made is like a forceful command. It's, it's an authoritative, compelling command. It was not like, hey, if you have time, can you get in the boat? This was a boss to his guys saying, get in the boat, right? So this was an authoritative command. It wasn't like a wishy-washy thing. It wasn't like, oh, hey, if you're in the mood, take a boat trip. It was like, you guys, in the boat. Okay, that's what this word is. Versus, the other word in that verse is he dismissed the crowds. The literal translation for that is he set free or he released. So contrast that in your mind where he just says, okay, crowds, see you later. You're all fed. You're all hungry. There was abundance of food. You're all healed up. Everyone's good. See you guys later. Disciples, get in the boat. And it's supposed to feel like a really stark contrast because of what comes happens next. He lets the crowd go. He sets them free, but his disciples he makes get in the boat. And that's important for what happens next, because what happens in verse 24? But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. So the sea was about four to five miles wide, and they're about three miles into this journey. They're far from the shore, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, which would be somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., in the, uh, in the fourth watch of the night, the darkest part of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. That's interesting. 
it's almost as if Jesus wanted them in the boat knowing there might be a storm. We believe Jesus is sovereign. He knows all, and he sends them in the boat on purpose. Why would he send them on a boat into a storm? We'll get to that in a couple of minutes. Don't worry. But as Jesus reveals himself, we see something particularly interesting about Jesus. So as with this miracle, just like the last miracle story, it's a, it's a bit about identity, right? Particularly it's about Jesus' identity, who he is. And he actually gives us some insight into who he is explicitly. Look at verse 26, if you still have your Bibles open. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they, cried, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Once again, we're going to nerd out for just a minute, if that's okay, because there's something really important that we miss in verse 27, if we're just reading our English translation. So in Greek, after Jesus says, take heart, or take courage, depending on your translation, it's actually one word lumped together, take heart, he says, it is I, do not be afraid. He says, take heart and don't be afraid. Why shouldn't they be afraid? It's the the darkest of the dark at night. They're in the middle of the sea. They can't see shore. These are experienced fishermen, and they're paranoid. They're scared about what's happening. And they see a ghost in the distance. Right reason to be like very justifiably like a scary scenario, right? Any one of us would be like totally scared in this moment and totally freaked out in this moment. And he says, take heart, don't be afraid. Why should they not be afraid? Well, we can say, oh yeah, because it's Jesus. Well, they didn't know it was Jesus at the time. It was a ghost. And they had some very particular beliefs about who Jesus was. And Jesus lets us in on something he has not let us in on before so explicitly. Mashed right in between the the two words, take heart and do not be afraid, is this phrase, it is I which is the best Greek translation we have for the Hebrew phrase, I am. Which is interesting if we've read some of the Old Testament before. It's a very, in the Greek, straightforward formula that means I am. And if that sounds familiar to anyone, it's because it goes back to a story about this guy Moses, who would be the guy who would lead the rescue out of Israel. And this same phrase is the phrase that God, Yahweh, uses for himself in the Old Testament, most famously at this scene at the burning bush. So if you have your Bibles, flip all the way towards the beginning, go to Exodus chapter 3, second book of the Bible, three chapters in. Go to Exodus chapter 3. God tells Moses to tell the Israelites his name. Okay, so in chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Okay, so first of all, what we know about Moses is he was a bit of a reluctant leader. He wasn't a good speaker in front of people. And God was sending him to go rescue his people. And Moses had all these reservations about why he's not the guy to do this. So he said, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's where this phrase comes up. 
This is an incredibly significant phrase because Jesus is saying, I am God. I am one with Yahweh. This is a big deal to the disciples. It's a big deal to Matthew's audience. This would have been a show-stopping moment where this letter was being read in churches and in communities. They said, hold on, hold on, hold on. What did he just say? He just claimed to be one with Yahweh. For anyone else, this would have been blasphemy punishable by death. He says, take heart, don't be afraid, because God Almighty is with you. God in the flesh is here amongst you. Jesus Christ's supernatural authority over the sea and his claim while walking on the sea shows us and says to us that Jesus is the Son of God. He's God with us in the flesh. And thus, we find out from the story that identity evokes worship. That realization of the truth evokes worship in the disciples who encounter him. The story ends with those in the boat saying, truly, this is the Son of God. And they worship him. Worshiping Jesus and claiming he is the Son of God would have been a strange response for good, pious Jews. You don't worship a human. They call him Jesus, the Son of God. They've encountered something that utterly shakes everything they've known up until this moment. They have encountered a Jesus that shakes them to their core and reshapes their worldviews and value systems. And it's the first time they actually say Jesus is the Son of God in the book of Matthew. So God the Father has said it before in Matthew 3 at Jesus' baptism when he said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Right? Even the demons have admitted it already in chapter 8 in Matthew. The demons cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? As Jesus is getting ready to cast them out. But now finally the disciples are declaring it too. This is an important moment for them in realizing who Jesus really is. He's not just a good teacher, a good rabbi. He's not just a great prophet who can heal. He's not just the Messiah, the promised figure who would save God's people, but he is Jesus, God in the flesh. So what do we learn about Jesus We've learned so far in Matthew, he's human, he's God, he's the Savior of the world, but he's also God with us, present with us. He's the long-awaited, foretold Messiah King, here, present with us, bringing about his very upside-down kingdom. And the truth is, what we believe about Jesus will dictate how we respond to him. So if we respond in a lackluster half-hearted commitment to Jesus that reveals something about what we believe about him. If we passionately worship him, not just singing on a Sunday, but throughout our lives, if we are earnestly seeking after him and allowing him to shape our work week, our family life, that tells us what we believe about Jesus, doesn't it? Yeah. If our end goal is my own happiness or my own comfort or my own security or my own job or my own family or whatever, and everything is filtered through making me happy, that sure tells us a lot about what we believe about Jesus, doesn't it? 
we see here a direct correlation in the story between the identity of Jesus realized and the response. The disciples encounter something truly supernatural. They see him as God and they respond in worship. Right? Worship that wouldn't even make sense to a Jew in first century Palestine. And they didn't, like for worship, they didn't bust out in a song, right? I think, Zach, you brought this up the other day at the queue. Like, the, the context wouldn't be like, oh, shoot, let's, okay, how great thou art in G, guys, everybody. No, they, they, there would have been this just overwhelming sense of awe, of just sitting in the presence and sort of like a, whoa, we're seeing something different here. And just sort of that overwhelming awe of who God is right in front of them compelled them to worship. But that's only one side of this story, seeing Jesus for who he is and then worshiping in light of that. The other side has to do with how we actually follow him. Because I think some of us can get excited about, oh, Jesus, and, and to worship absolutely, and then it never translates into how we live our life. And we never shape our lives around being with Jesus, being like him, and doing the things he did. We just sort of say, well, that's for, that's for Sundays, or that's for my morning devotional time so I don't get depressed later in the day, or that's for, you know, when I'm praying with my wife or my kids later, or whatever. But what we're meant to see from the story is not only who Jesus is and our response to that, but how we live in light of who Jesus is and how we follow him. So let's look at this story through the lens of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, he made the disciples get in the boat. Right? Jesus wanted to get away. The crowds followed him. So he got them all healed up, got them fed, sent them away, and he forces his disciples on the boat. And surprise, surprise, they get hit with a storm. And they see a ghost out in the distance. They're all kinds of messed up at this point and freaked out. But Jesus says, don't worry. God in the flesh is here with you. I don't know if that like quelled their terror, but it definitely like changed the scenario for sure. But what happens next? Look at verse 28. Go back to Matthew 14. Look at verse 28. Peter answered him, right? So Jesus says, take heart. I am is with you. Don't be afraid. Peter responds back. Gotta love Peter. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, when who saw the wind? Peter. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So, to a degree, they still are not getting who Jesus is. That phrase, O oh, you of little faith, means to trust too little. So it's not like they were missing some capacity to understand he was God. That's not, we're that's not the faith we're talking about here. It's not like they didn't necessarily understand that he was the Messiah, right? And they hadn't intellectually comprehended all the truths about what God in the flesh actually means. With this word that Jesus says, you of little faith, actually means, oh, you who trust too little. So it's one thing to know Jesus. It's another thing to trust him, right? It's one thing to know Jesus. It's another thing to trust him with our money and our kids and our friendships and our spouses. 
We think they're starting to get who Jesus is, but they're not quite getting how to live in light of that yet. So they're getting a better understanding of their Christology, right? But not yet in their discipleship. And remember that John continues the story. We looked at this last week. John continues the story after the feeding of 20,000 plus people with Jesus teaching about he himself being the bread of life. So why does he do that? Why does John say on the very next day, Jesus had to say, I'm the bread of life. Bread come from heaven. Feast on me. Don't worry about the bread of this world, but feast on me. Why does he say that? Well, the book of Mark, who tells the same story as well, gives us a little bit of an insight that Matthew doesn't give us. You don't have to turn there. I'll read to you Mark 6, 51 and 52. And he got in the boat with them, right? So Jesus gets in the boat with them after the whole Peter scenario. The wind ceased. The storm stopped. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. This is weird, but their hearts were hardened. Okay, so let me paint a picture for you here. So if I were to mash up the stories between Matthew, Mark, and John that that they're all telling here, Jesus wants to get away to pray. He's sad about John the Baptist. He's grieving. He's also aware that heat is ramping up around his ministry, so he wants to get away to the mountain. Crowds interrupt him. So he has hundreds that he heals and 20 plus thousand people that he miraculously feeds in the like desolate place. That's all wrapped up. He makes the disciples get on the boat. He sends the crowds away. He goes up to the mountain to get the solitude with the father that he's been wanting. The waves are rough. The disciples are freaking out. It's the dead of night and they see a ghost coming who is actually Jesus coming back to join them. Peter says, if it's you, call me out. Jesus says, come on out. Peter trusts too little in Jesus. He noticed the winds and the waves, and he takes his focus off Jesus and onto the cares of this world. Peter help, or Jesus helps Peter back. They all get into the boat. They all were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. The disciples are still thinking about two miracles ago, what's happening. They just go through this crazy storm. Peter walks on water. Guys, it's like if we were all in a boat and Steve just starts walking on water. This is like, blow your mind. Walks on water. He gets in and you think, they're going to ask, hey, how do you walk on water? This seems like a huge thing. They're still wondering about the loaves. They still don't quite get it. And Jesus continues the teaching in John chapter 6 that, no, guys, let's talk about the loaves some more. I'm the bread of life. Don't worry about the actual bread you eat. Mark, for us, explains that multiplying the loaves should have demonstrated Jesus' true identity to them. That might be evidence enough for some, not for them. But neither that miracle nor the appearance of Jesus on the water could open their hearts to the reality of his divine nature. They kept failing to understand what's going on here, and that's why in John 6, Jesus has to teach about why he's the bread of life and, and what was happening on the boat and how to live with him next. Oddly, in that wonderful place of miraculous provision from Jesus and in serving others with Jesus, they still don't quite see what's going on with Jesus. They just still don't see things about him that he wants them to see about him. But here's what's fascinating. If we look at the, the chronology we have from Matthew, Mark, and John about this, this one to two day roller coaster of a couple of days. One thing that I love 
is that full comprehension of who Jesus was and what he was about was not necessary to worship him. Full comprehension of who Jesus was was not a a roadblock to worship. There was still a sense that they were not getting it. Right? They just see Jesus walk on the water. Peter walk on the water. They get back in the boat. Jesus calms the storm. They're still asking about a thing that was two miracles ago and not understanding about the loaves and still wondering what's happening here, but that does not prevent them from worshiping. I think that's important for us today because I think often we discount ourselves and say, well, I don't know enough. I haven't been to church long enough. I haven't taken the right classes. I haven't read enough of the Bible. I don't pray enough. And we discount ourselves and we say, ah, we'll let the more experienced people worship and serve and lead. We'll let the people who know more things do more things. We find that is a fallacy here. We find that is not the way of following Jesus. It's such a beautiful picture for us in our apprenticeship to Jesus because Jesus does not want us to disqualify ourselves because we don't know enough. The disciples didn't know enough and they still unabashedly worshiped him. Jesus knew they needed to learn this good thing in a hard place. And maybe that's why he made them get on the boat in the first place and didn't just let them go with the crowds. It took this terrifying storm and a potential ghost encounter to see Jesus as the Messiah and as God and worship him. They had not declared he was the Son of God yet. We've not seen them worshiping him like this yet. It took these moments and these circumstances to worship him. Sometimes we only learn the hard way, right? I think uh, for me personally, that's like the absolute best picture of that is in my son, Calvin. Like he's two and a half years old. If you haven't met Calvin, he's usually the loudest one in any room. And so often, I think as we're parenting and disciplining and teaching, I think, bro, if you would just listen to me, life would be so much easier for you. Like, unreal, your life would be so much better if you didn't argue, if you didn't disobey, or if you didn't, like, be so defiant, or if I didn't have to warn you 18 times, if I didn't have to give you whatever. I just think, oh, you don't even know how good your life would be. Like, so many beach days, so many zoo days, so much, like, the food he loves, he'd be eating the candy, he'd be watching the shows he wanted, he'd be playing in the parks he wanted. Like, life would be good for this two-year-old if only he just listened, you know? (laughs) But we know that's not the case. We know that's not how kids learn. Sometimes kids learn good things through hard circumstances, through being disciplined, through having to say no, through taking something away, or teaching them that the world is not about themselves, but their little brother is also a part of that world, and their parents are a part of that world, and our friends are a part of that world, and our church is a part of that world. I think sometimes, like my son Calvin, we find ourselves having to learn really good and necessary things in hard places because that's sometimes the only place we learn. Sometimes we only learn those lessons God wants us to learn in those hard places. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. If you have a Bible, like underline the heck out of that verse. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Meaning, if you don't go through hard times, disciplines, you are not really God's children. It's interesting. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, and it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is never fun in the moment, but it yields this peaceful fruit of righteousness. And here's what's crazy about the disciples in the boat in this storm. If we remember from Matthew, this isn't their first storm. Do you guys remember that? In Matthew 8, Jesus has used hard times in their life to teach them good things a bunch. And he's done that, in fact, through another storm. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. They should know not to get in boats with Jesus at this point. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Which is not a salvific cry to his lordship, by the way. But this would have been a, hey, you got us into this mess. Get us out of this mess kind of thing. That's what they were saying. And he said to them, why are you afraid? What's that phrase next? Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you who trust too little. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Okay, so in that first storm, they're asking, where are you? What's going on? In the second storm, they make a declaration. You are the Son of God. There's no more questioning left for them. They've seen enough. They learned in the hardest places, alone in the boat, in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, in the clutches of this raging storm, what they had not yet learned in any other place or any other time. That Jesus is the Son of God. We're going to follow him, and we're going to worship him. Sometimes it takes hard times in our lives to understand Jesus as God and worship him. For instance, if life is always amazing, you always have enough money, you're always healthy, you always have the nicest cars and the nicest house, an earthly justification, life is awesome. Why would you need the help of Jesus? Why would you see him as Lord, sovereign over your life, if you think everything you do is awesome and you're just living the good life 24-7? Jesus is telling us he will use these hard times to show us he's in control and that he is Lord. You are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And he'll use those hard times to teach us. Are there moments where you've been brought down to the pit and you've seen how good God is in the midst of that. 
how you've seen him rescue you out of that moment. What if we learned the best things for us in the hardest places in life? What if Jesus loves us enough to let us struggle a little bit in the storm to see him clearer and to see him better? How would that change the way we see storms in life? It might create a little bit of expectancy for good in us, right? That this storm isn't it. We live with an eternal perspective. This world is not everything. And if we know Jesus is present with us, that he's over us, Lord over us, he cares for us, he's with us, then we have a much longer perspective than those who don't know Jesus do. When they see just the storms for the storms, and life is always going to be bad. Peter, the same Peter who was in the boat, walks on the water with Jesus, trusts too little, takes his eyes off Jesus, later writes in his very own letter to churches in 1 Peter 5, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter, this fisherman who walks on water, who later denies Jesus, who becomes what most consider the first leader in the church, who gives the first sermon of this new church. He asks the question in the first storm, don't you care about us? Asks the question in the second storm, can I come out to you in the water? And later writes to churches, you'll, you'll struggle for a little while, but the God of all grace, who has called you to himself, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter's got the long view. He didn't have the long view at first, right? He's in the boat, freaking out with everyone else. But he takes this little step of faith, literally. Sorry, that's a cliche. He steps out of the boat in faith in Jesus, sets his eyes on him. He, through experience, what a friend of mine calls a storm theology. Right, what if God and his great love for you wants to do something really good in your life? And that good, restoring you, making you strong, firm, steadfast, establishing you, confirming you. What if those good things are brought about through life's storms? Storms he has complete control over. Storms he's presiding over. And storms in which he is present with you. That progression from Peter, from we're going to die to can I get out on the water with you? To say to churches later, trust me, the suffering, the struggles are just temporary. That's an incredible progression modeled for us in Scripture. So in this text, we have Peter, what seems like rebuked or scolded, or some might say lovingly uh, disciplined, is not because he stepped out of the boat. Like, well, of course you sunk, Peter. You're on water. No, it's because he took his eyes off Jesus. He was not making Jesus the grand object of his faith in that moment. And we have this, this caricature, this picture of the difference between setting your eyes on Jesus and being concerned with the waves, with the wind, the cares of this world. For Jesus, in our, in our picture, our very vivid picture today, Jesus' faith is not just a declaration or admission, right? This declaration that I'm a sinner, save me. Like Peter said, Lord, save me. 
It's that, but it's not only that, that we need to reach out our hand to Jesus as Savior. But our picture here of faith is, is that of walking toward Jesus with our eyes on Jesus. Yes, we need him as Savior. We do. We all come to him underwater, so to speak. But once we've been pulled up, we also must walk to him. There is much more life to live after you've been saved. That's not it. There's more to life. We must walk to Jesus as Lord, trusting his power and authority each step of the way. So yes, faith means declaring this admission that Jesus is Lord. That is absolutely necessary to our Christian life. And yes, faith means understanding these basic truths that Jesus, fully God, became fully man so that I, a fully sinful man, might be fully reconciled to God. We need to understand these truths, absolutely. But faith also means trust to Jesus. That exact translation of you of little faith is you who trust too little. Jesus is not concerned with whether they see him rightly as God in that moment. They're concerned. He's concerned if they're actually trusting him. Faith also means trust. So to have faith is to trust. Getting off the boat into evil waters, walking forward towards Jesus by the power of Jesus until we get to Jesus. So if we knew that Jesus was really in control, if we knew that he really cared for us, that he was really present with us, would that change how we see hard times in life? How would it change we see hard times in life? Would that grow and develop and cultivate our faith in new ways to be put in situations we've never been put in before and have to rely on Jesus in ways we've never had to rely on him before? Would that cultivate and grow and develop our faith? Most importantly, though, would it change our questioning from who are you, where are you, to what good are you doing? Or what are you trying to teach me? Would it change our questioning from who are you, where are you, in the life's hardest storms, hardest times, to what good are you doing? What are you teaching me?